Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm dandy. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, no real controversies or non-troversies this week. It's a relatively late week news-wise, so we figured we'd do our uh, yearly top five, or or at least the, the top five that we could get to, given that, you know, studios release every single movie for adults over an eight or nine week stretch that ends uh, today, t- tomorrow maybe, I don't know. Uh, I still haven't seen Licorice Pizza, for instance, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film, because uh, it did not open until like three days ago here in Dallas, so... I'll be seeing that at some point here soon. Uh, Maybe it will make some sort of revised top five or top ten in the future, but not for now. Um, So consider it a top five that we have seen. That's, you know, an important proviso. Uh, I've actually already published my top ten, so faithful Sunny Bunch readers won't find a ton of surprises for me on my list. But I'm sure Alyssa and Peter will have lots of good stuff. uh, And we'll probably bet we'll have a little bit of overlap here, but we'll see. I don't know. Alyssa, we're going to start with you. What is your number five pick? I'm actually totally going to cheat. I have like a top seven and refuse to separate them. But are we going, we're counting down from. Yeah, I mean, I I was planning on going, you know, one, uh, each of us would do one. And then, you know, uh, we would do all uh, the ones that are tied for number five. We would get to the number one uh, at the same time. But if you want to do your your bottom three, it's fine. It's fine. That's Um, fine. uh, So my number five is West Side Story, uh, which I thought was gorgeous and overwhelming. But the more I sit with it, the more I think that Ansel Elgort is just not that good as Tony. And. That role is tricky in any case because he and Maria are both such dunderheads. But I think Elgort was really the weak link in the film, and that's hard when it's one of your leads. Yeah, that's that's fair. I think he is. He he did nothing for me in the moment, and I I haven't really thought about him much since. Yeah, uh, I think Mike but, Face is just so much better than he is as Riff that it's a uh, it's kind of not a fair contest. I mean, Riff is also just a more interesting character, too, because he gets he's he's the pot stir. Absolutely. And, you know, is, you know, represents the sort of he is damned and knows he's damned and is struggling against it. Um, and knowing that he, you know, sort of knowing that he's going to fail on some level and also just brings the sort of almost romantic tension to his relationship with Tony um, in a way that I think is interesting without being overdone. Peter, what is your fifth pick? I also had West Side Story in my number five slot. Um, It's a movie I really liked. I have not been as bothered in retrospect by Ansel Elgort's performance, but I I have to say, as I've contemplated going back to this movie, it's one I want to see again, and I I certainly will see again, probably even in the theaters, once a few things in life uh, clear up to make time for it. But, um, but it's one that I've been a little bit hesitant to go back, to like rush back to see just because of the length. And maybe that's partly because I've seen a lot of two and a half hour movies over the past month and all of them have felt at least 10 minutes too long, if not 25. Or in, in the case of House of Gucci, you know, about 50 minutes too long. But this one just sort of feels like I get why it is as long as it is, but it feels like it overstays its welcome by a little bit. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready to put my butt in the seat for quite that long. If it was a two hour and nine minute movie, I think I'd be, it it would be a little higher on my list and I'd be rushing back to see it. My number five pick, the fifth best best movie I saw this year is The Last Duel, uh, which I uh, continue to love and be flummoxed by some of the responses to it on Twitter and elsewhere. You know, if if you uh, can't handle an adult, you know, discussion about 
sex and violence and all that stuff, uh, you know, maybe maybe movies just aren't for you. I don't know. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe, wait. Maybe. Movies are for you because Marvel movies don't have any of that stuff. And that's the only thing that, that matters anymore. It's true. It's true. Uh, Alyssa, what is your number four pick? What's your fourth best film? Um, as sort of companions to each other, I really loved The Card Counter and Dune, uh, which have both really stayed with me as sort of austere movies about moving forward through the world, even though you are damned. Also, they both star Oscar Isaac. And I think with Oscar Isaac is almost certain to crack my top five, uh, sort of no matter what it is. But, you know, I went into the card counter, you know, not as a Paul Schrader person, went into Dune, not particularly as a Frank Herbert person, although I've read the books. And the sort of era of inevitability hanging over both of them, um, I think it's just really tremendous. The card counter in particular has really stuck with me. The sort of juxtaposition between the kind of eerie, almost narcotized calm with which Schrader shoots the casinos where his main character spends most of his days. And then just the really, you know, the sort of fish-eyed horror of the depictions of Americans torturing Iraqis has really, really stayed with me. No one saw that movie. No one talked about it. But God, is it powerful. And I think, you know, I hope people discover it over time because I thought it was really tremendous. Uh, Peter, what is your fourth best? I swear to God, Alyssa and I did not talk about this or coordinate it at all, but it is also the card counter. Um, and for many of the same reasons. Look, it's a it's yet another Paul Schrader movie about sin and obsession and damaged male psyches. Uh, I mean, Taxi Driver is one of my four or five favorite films of all time, a movie I've watched over and over again. I don't think The Card Counter is quite that good, but it is a damn, damn good movie, probably Schrader's best in in a decade or more. And it's, you know, part of it is the Oscar Isaac performance at the center of it, which is the best performance I've seen this year, male or female, lead or not, I, I think of, period. I just think it's the best performance I've seen this year. But part of it is that Schrader is able to do some really tricky work that very few other modern writers or directors are able to pull off in terms of making a movie very specifically about an individual that is also very clearly making a distinct commentary on American culture without making the movie in any way feel didactically political or like like he's coming on to like he's just there to, to sort of sell you on a message or, you know, or a program. At all. It's the anti-Don't Look Up is what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't seen Don't Look Up because, <laughs> you know, end of year issues. Um, but yes, that is my assumption. And and I just, like, I mean, I think there's a, there is a, a message. This is a political film. Like, there's no avoiding that. And there is a, a political message in a, in this movie, which was released on the, the 20th anniversary weekend of 9-11. And that was not a coincidence. And I think a lot of people, even people who liked the movie, overlooked that a little bit. But doesn't feel like a movie that's hitting you over the head with anything. It feels like a movie that is just asking you to sympathize with a really damaged person who has been through a lot, who is somebody who is hard to love, but needs love. The Peter Suderman story. Uh, all right. Number four is, uh, is uh, for me, was uh, Red Rocket, uh, which I, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, but it's Sean Baker's latest. He's the guy who made uh, the Florida Project and Tangerine. I I really really love the Florida Project, and I didn't. I wasn't really expecting much going into this. I hadn't read a ton about it before seeing it, and it is in I think a very real way the defining film of the kind of Trump era of American 
politics. I mean, it, it it's set in 2016 when the uh, conventions are going on. So that's kind of like background noise. And there are, there are like, you know, Trump, make America great again, flags in the background, whatever. But it's not about Trump. He's not a character. He's not really mentioned or talked about or discussed, really. But it is about a very Trump-like figure. The The main character, uh, who's played by Simon Rex, is a hustler. He's a, he's a con man. He's always talking about, you know, all these great things that he's done. Uh, and as the film comes unspools, we realize that he has been kind of inflating all of that. And yet he is very charismatic. He's able to pull people in and, and get them to do things they would otherwise not do to base themselves in certain ways, which, again, feels very familiar to some of us. But uh, Red Rocket, number four, good movie. Check it out. It's in theaters now. I, I got to say, I'm jealous that you've been able to see that. I'm not sure how I would have seen that up until now, not being a member of the uh, Washington Area Film Critics Association and just having to see movies at, at screenings. and at uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is one of these classic came out in New York and L.A. I don't think it's available in D.C., which is not a tiny market. It should be out in D.C. now. It should be in at least one or two theaters. Unless it came out in the last week. Yeah, I think I think it came out this weekend. I think it came out anyway. It doesn't matter. It's, it's around. People check it out or catch it on VOD when it hits VOD and three months or six weeks or whenever. But it's a good movie. Check it out. Number three, Alyssa. I'm going to be a pain again and say for me, it's Zola and the Last Duel, which are two movies, um, both true stories, that in each in their own way um, and separated by centuries are about women attempting to sort of reassert the rules that they thought existed about sex and violence. Um, and, I, you know, I was not someone who followed the original like Zola Twitter thread about a stripper's like, trip to work trip to Florida gone badly wrong. Um, but Jansica Bravo did a really fascinating job of both sort of preserving the internet-y voice of the original thread. Um, the only other work that I think remotely did as well as that this year was Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which is probably the best novel I read all year. Uh, but also at just getting at the sort of menace and terror of being in a situation that is not what you thought it was. Um, and that's helped a lot by Coleman Domingo's really great unnerving performance as a pimp. Um, but it's just, it's a movie about a woman trying to sort of wrest control back of a situation that's gone completely off the rails. And The Last Duel is, you know, again, a true story, very much about the same thing. And Ridley Scott, I think, does, does something really impressive in the way that he depicts a rape from multiple perspectives and gets at the unsteadiness of, you know, the narrator's experiences of similar events. Um, I think they're, they're really outstanding companion pieces. Uh, they're both great. Peter. So for my number three, I have The French Dispatch, which is a great comic morality play. It's a great movie about... Um, about magazines and about writers and editors and the beautiful weirdness of the writer-editor relationship, of every individual writer-editor relationship. Um, it's a great movie about the power of uh, personal and idiosyncratic art to give life meaning and joy, but even to save. And uh, and it's it's just a it's a wonderful expression of everything that Wes Anderson has come to stand for it and and care about over you know twenty five years or so now. And I think one of his better movies overall. Number three for me is The Card Counter, which you guys have already talked about a bit. Uh, one thing I just want to highlight that you guys didn't really uh, talk about is that 
Paul Schrader is a poker player, and he kind of understands the the kind of dingier aspects of poker playing in the sense that, like, when you go and play cards for six hours in a casino – uh, it's not, it's not like, it's not like a dungeon, like in rounders. Right. Uh, and it's not, it's not like high class and glitzy, uh, like some of the, some of the poker movies you see. It's, it's basically, uh, you're, you're sitting at a kind of a crappy table with a bunch of people not doing anything for long stretches of time with fluorescent lights overhead and stale cigarette smoke hanging in the background and like cold coffee in front of you. That's the life of, of a poker player. And it very effectively kind of translates that on screen. It is. It is. I mean, especially I, like, given his choice of locations, right? He didn't bring us to Las Vegas. He didn't bring us right. anywhere he's, classy. It's Atlantic City and Louisiana, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and, and like the you know, and like reservation casinos. Yeah. I mean, he's like he's hitting the lowlights of the the poker tour, deliberately playing for sort of smaller stakes, etc. So good movie. Check it out. Good movie about poker in addition to, you know, sin and the soul of America and all that stuff, but specifically cards. All right. Uh, second best movie. Uh, Alyssa. The French Dispatch and The Green Knight, which are both effectively short story collections that are designed to immerse you in an entirely different milieu than the one you occupy. One of them that portrayed in The Green Knight is much stranger than the other, uh, The French Dispatch. But both of them are just really sort of transporting anecdotal movies um, that look sensational. <laughs> you know, The French Dispatch looks great in all of the Wes Anderson-y ways, but The Green Knight is just unbelievably gorgeous and it was one of the movies that made me feel really really good about being back in a theater peter my second favorite movie of the year is dune uh denny Villeneuve's adaptation of the first half of frank herbert's novel uh i've it's the only new movie this year that i have seen three times already and man i'm looking forward to seeing it uh many many more i've already ordered the 4k disc uh and i'm so excited to have it um in a couple of weeks here peter they're gonna put out a set that has both of them it's gonna have part one and part two and together I'll you just, you just have to be patient i'll buy that with Patience. like a little plaster casted worm that comes with it or whatever and like display it on my shelf and i'll be so Baron proud Hartman. of myself for having that thing sitting there on my shelf even if i never even opened it. No, I, man, I insist that you come to the podcast in a full God Emperor of Doom, Doom Sandworm costume. It's it's just a total sensory experience, and it's so overwhelming. And it also, it is, I think, the only movie ever to truly capture the sensation of reading classic science fiction. Now, obviously, it's adapting a sort of post-Golden Age, post-Silver Age, you know, uh, work, but Frank Herbert was obviously informed by all of the Asimov, Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke stuff that I grew up reading. And a lot of that sort of filters both through Frank Herbert and then through this movie. Um, and it just sort of gets big, epic, at-scale science fiction, uh, the sensibility of, of those works in a way that I have never, ever seen on screen before. I'm super excited to hear that after uh, Denis Villeneuve does... Um, does part two, he's looking at adapting Rendezvous with Rama, another movie about enormity and about living in a universe that is so big that you can barely comprehend it. And and I like that that's his take on the rest of on like life outside of planet Earth is that like, oh, my gosh, folks, it's so big. There's so much of it. Our tiny little puny human brains will never fully grasp it. And I'm, but I'm going to try and put it on screen. Uh, Dune didn't make my top five, but it did make my top 10 because it is simply the best theatrical experience that I've had all year. Like you cannot, 
you cannot understand what this movie is is and what it is doing without seeing it in a theater. Uh, so should you should have gone but to see it in a theater when you had the chance. If you if you spent a little bit of scratch on a home theater, it's a great no, it's, it's not it's even a close. Great it's not even, way it's to not, test out it's not even how close good to your the home same theater thing. is. So Just, sorry. I mean, you get uh, to find out how you. Uh, part of it is you get to find out the gap between your home theater and and an Atmos, you know, a Dolby Atmos room. Which is the same, which is going to be huge because it's just not as good. All right. Uh, second best movie I saw this year is French Dispatch for all of the reasons uh, that Alyssa mentioned, but also uh, because it has the best portrayal of an editor I think I've ever seen. Bill Murray uh, doing his thing where he's he's uh, very, very uh, he, he has this whole complex system of payment in his head that he explains to people and also is constantly complaining about expenses while also paying them. A uh, very important part of any editor's job. Um, and uh, understands that when a writer takes out something important, he needs to put it back in. These these are he 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 captures all of the things that an editor uh, does very well, and he has a sort of world weary uh, annoyance about him. Again, not saying all editors are like that, but you know, one or two of them. All right, uh, best movie of the year, Alyssa. Pig, which is the movie that surprised the hell out of me most this year. Um, it- are all three of us going to pick Pig? Yep. Is that is that what's I, happening here? I think here? that's okay. likely. Well, right. I have okay. a I have a sort of I have like it's like pig plus. Okay. Uh, so an Alyssa style cheating at the top five. Yeah. Um, I mean, pig was I think all of us went into it sort of expecting it to be like Fight Club with a truffle pig, um, or you know John Wick with a truffle pig, and instead it is something so much stranger and more beautiful and empathetic. It yeah, it's got it's got Fight Club. It's got you know, a man desperately in search of his animal companion. But it also has sort of Beasts of the Southern Wild style strange meditations on the inevitability of climate catastrophe and, you know, profound acts of empathy enacted through cooking. And I think the the conversation with the chef at the high-end restaurant is maybe just my pick for the best scene of the year, not because it is you know, particularly flashy, but because of the way it is written and acted as a total dissection of a man's soul in about five minutes done not out of cruelty, um, but out of sort of deep compassion and understanding that you don't necessarily expect. I just think it's spectacular um, and surprising. And you know what? The movie should be surprising. I, I recognize that I, you know, sort of I am the Marvel scold on this podcast. I am the person who sort of burned out on people getting exactly what they want at the theater. But Pig is the great illustration of why you should go into stuff that you're not sure what it's going to be. You're not sure you're going to like it. You're not even sure what the damn thing is because sometimes what it is is just transcendent. Peter. So my alternative pick is uh, is Hawkeye, the limited series <laughs> on Disney+, Plus, just because I've been feeling not very good and I've been watching it and it's so comforting. It's just sort of pleasant. But no, Pig is the best movie of the year by far. Like with that, it's just, that's why I go see the movies is to see Nicolas Cage make chicken in Pig and like to be sad and weird and understated. And it's it's such a great movie about about human connection but also about the finiteness of life, right? And it so so much of this movie is about the fact that life ends for each individual person, but also for like all of human civilization, right? At some point, Portland's going to be underwater and none of this will matter. 
But in the meantime, eat a salted baguette. Right. In in the meantime, eat something wonderful and enjoy that it was made with care. And make something with care yourself for other people because that's what we can do and that's that's the kindness we can show to them. It's a great movie. I loved it. I haven't actually gone back to watch it again um, just because I've had so many other things to watch, but I'm I'm it's one that I, I really want to see again. It's on Hulu. It's also it's on Hulu. I watched it. It's recently. the perfect length. Right? It's like is it ninety one minutes or eighty nine minutes or something? I mean it's I think it's just under a hundred minutes. It might be ninety eight minutes, right? It's it's so perfectly and it doesn't feel like it's chopped short at all. It feels like it's just exactly the perfect length, a complete story, a complete portrayal of a world and a set of characters and it doesn't have to belabor the point and it doesn't have to be an epic it just has to locate you there and pick exactly the right details yeah i also picked pig uh I, nobody has really talked about alex wolf who is the junior food procurer who is is uh you know working with nicholas cage's character to get truffles into the city uh and he is just wonderful in this like there are just so many nice little character touches like he listens to classical music but not really classical music he listens to like classical music explainers um and and can't quite understand why that's that's an issue uh he uh you know his relationship with his dad and with his mom like there's this just wonderful little moment in a hospital where he is lamenting the fact that she is hanging on uh, without life, without life, so to speak. Um, so good movie. Great, great performances. Everybody love pig. It's a, like I said, it's on Hulu. Now it's on Hulu. You can go stream it. If you got Hulu, good movie. Check it out. It's also worth noting that this is director Michael Sarnaski's first feature, which yeah, feels I didn't insane. Even realize that. I, I didn't, I didn't realize that until I was putting together the critics, critics picks list for IndieWire. They were in one of the categories is first feature. And I was like, "Oh, I didn't really. I had no idea yeah. that this was his his first movie. It is. It it, it it looks. It looks like so. It's it, it's made for Neon, or it was it was acquired by Neon. I don't know if Neon actually made it, but it it is the sort of movie that like, if you watch a lot of Nick Cage movies that he has made recently, they all look cheap and kind of terrible, and they're they're all lit like NBC sitcoms. And this is not. This is lit like a real movie, um, with lots of ambient light and just it's great." Great movie. Uh, okay. If you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's great. Please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we're going to have a special bonus episode on our favorite non-Matrix Wachowski movie. Uh, speaking of the Wachowskis, or one of them anyway, uh, and please switch this off if you're worried about spoilers. Because I'm going to be talking about the plot in my intro and there's going to be spoiler talk throughout. So if you're worried about spoilers and you haven't seen the movie, Matrix Resurrections, which is on HBO Max now, it's in theaters. You, no excuse if you... If you uh, want to watch it before listening to this, go watch it. Uh, but we're going to be talking about plot stuff, so spoilers. Anyway, on to the main event. The Matrix Resurrections, a movie that posits the original trilogy as a whole is regarded as an unrivaled masterpiece beloved by all, and that Neo is a real guy really named Thomas Anderson who really did all of the those things and has been trapped in the Matrix again. And now he's there and they got to get him out again for some reason. Uh, indeed, uh, most of the first hour or so of this film is kind of a winking metatextual joke about the absurdity of reboots and remakes and corporatized culture, uh, like, for instance, The Matrix Resurrections, right? And this is my first complaint with the movie. Continually calling attention to the fact that you are an unnecessary corporate cash grab does not lessen the fact that you are making an unnecessary corporate 
cash grab. Like you, you can't just say like, oh, look at us. We're doing this and it's so bad. But no, that's, that's not how it works. Um, and that would be fine and maybe even kind of clever if the takeaway of this whole section of the film wasn't, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here, uh, wasn't bullet time is stupid or praising bullet time in, in, in excess of everything else is stupid. Because that's my takeaway from the joke that involves a bunch of the corporate programming drones talking about, you know, they're debating, what does the Matrix mean? Is it trans politics or is it corporate media? Is it blah, 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 red pill, blue pill? You know, what does it mean? Before settling uh, wrongly, I think, in the film and the filmmaker's eyes on bullet time, right? The filmmakers here, director Ilana Wachowski, who co-wrote with David Mitchell and Alexander Hemmen, seem almost vexed that bullet time rather than, I don't know, Baudelaire or whatever became shorthand Baudrillard, for the franchise. Not Baudelaire. Baudrillard, Very sorry, different. sorry. Baudrillard, sorry. Baudrillard uh, became shorthand for the franchise's success. And they're, and they're demonstrating their frustration for the first 110 minutes or so of this movie by putting uh, action on the screen that looks like it was shot by a barely competent second unit. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not really exaggerating when I say that like Marvel. Which is notable given that there was no second unit on this picture. Alana Wachowski shot all of it. Marvel movies uh, do better action. So take that take that for what you what you what you want. The movie fails on a basic storytelling level in the sense that very little of what is happening makes that much sense and it fails on a basic action beat level. There's really only one interesting visual idea in the film, right? And that's this new thing, the swarm mode where bots hidden in the program go crazy and they attack whatever target is presented to them. Um, it's kind of a, I, I, we can debate on whether it's ham-fisted or not, but I think it's a little bit ham-fisted, but whatever. At least it's kind of a cool looking visual metaphor for online mobs, right? They go and dominate discussions and disrupt things, etc. Though it's one that gets at one of the film's central problems for me, which is that it's almost a brief for schizophrenia. I mean, I, I look, all I'm saying here is that if I had made a movie that literally inspired a mentally unstable person to kill people, and the original Matrix did do this, uh, if you've watched the documentary A Glitch in the Matrix, you'll see. Um, it literally, like, got somebody kind of crazy. They went out and killed somebody. Fine. You can't blame an artist for that. That You cannot blame an artist for what a mentally deranged person does, but it just it's what happened. I'm not sure I would make as my villain in a follow-on film a psychiatrist who wants the hero to get back on his meds because he's a danger to himself and others. I mean, it's just, you can't say that they're unaware of it because they're aware of every discussion about this film as the rest of the film makes clear. It's kind of, it's kind of, I hate this word, kind of problematic. Anyway, there are things about the movie I like a bit. Uh, particularly the acting. Jessica Henwick as Hacker Bugs is great. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II is, is kind of hilarious as weird, goofy Morpheus. Um, and he has just the best wardrobe of anybody in the movie. Jonathan Groff, Neil Patrick Harris, uh, they seem to understand the campy disaster that they found themselves in and are really hamming it up. Um, but on the whole, it does not work on basically any level for me. On the other hand, maybe it's great. Alyssa, I think of the three of us, you enjoyed this film the most. What am I missing here? I've gone back and forth on The Matrix Resurrections a lot, uh, in part because I, watching it in the theater, I did sort of appreciate the nose-thumbing audacity of the concept, but it's really sort of receded in my mind the further I've gotten away from it, and I'm not that far away from it. I'm a couple weeks removed. Um, the real pleasure of this movie is seeing uh, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss together again, um, and the most human element of the film is actually sort of the 
the one where the plot is most underdeveloped um, and where the movie could have benefited from spending the most time. Um, I sort of joked to Peter as we were watch- walking out of the screening where we saw this that this is a Matrix movie for people who really, really loved Cloud Atlas. And I'm one of those people who did love Cloud Atlas in a lot of ways because it both has the same kind of meta, you know, examining itself technique that David Mitchell employs often. Um, but it is essentially a story about people who whose love is so powerful that it persists across, you know, different dimensions of reality and across reincarnations of their bodies. Um, and that is the kind of, you know, I mean, that's sort of the concept of Cloud Atlas, which is about sort of resurrection and moral improvement across um, centuries. Um, but it's also very sort of Wachowskian, right? I mean, they are the Wachowski sisters are very sentimental filmmakers on a lot of levels, that they make stuff that is, you know, they make genre films, they make action films, but a lot of what they make are just love stories. Um, that's sort of the whole point of their Netflix series, sense Um, And yet, you know, that concept ends up just kind of underbaked in the movie. There is this literal throwaway line about how, um, the analyst keeps resurrecting Trinity and Neo over and over again and trying to keep them apart because, you know, having them in tension is somehow key to the functioning of the Matrix. But they keep sort of finding their way back to each other. They keep reaching for each other with disastrous consequences for the machine's ability to maintain this illusion. Um, and that's a really interesting idea that the movie just doesn't really explore at all. And Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are great together. I mean, that sort of sad scene in the coffee shop when they, you know, sort of first, when they, you know, meet air quotes again um, after they've both been sort of plugged back into the simulation is sort of lovely and awkward and middle-aged. Seeing them, you know, together when they're both successfully unplugged from the Matrix again, uh, presented very much as these sort of androgynous halves of each other uh, is sort of you know, has this passing beauty to it. But, you know, the movie as a whole just doesn't really... Although, so I I went and watched uh, the first Matrix again, and it's also a kind of a reverse quote of the moment in the first film when, at the very, very end, when Trinity pulls Neo out of the Matrix right before they have to shut down, you know, use the EMP device, right? And she is pulling him out of the chair in that case, uh, right? And, And like so much of this movie, it is... It's either an inverted or a, a quote or a direct reference to an image or line or something from the first film. But yeah, but they already they already did that in Reloaded. His Superman moment in Reloaded is the is him him saving her from the fall and pulling the bullet out of her. It's they, they've they've already done all of this stuff. Yeah, um, and it just, all this has happened before. Uh, all of this will happen again. Happen again. Um, but yeah, it just it is not quite. It is it does not really cohere uh as a thing and it's sort of a bummer for the Wachowskis that they're stuck making or at least for you know for Lana Wachowski that she is making you know what's effectively like I don't know what the budget on this was 150 million dollars something 150 something uh you know sort of 190 million reported okay 190 million dollars like nose thumb at at Warner Brothers um and I wish there was a world in which they could you know, and Lily's writing for TV now. So it's like, I don't want to, it's always weird to project onto directors what they should be doing with their careers. But man, I would love to see the Wachowskis make 
something more original that cost less to make, so it mattered less when it inevitably failed or was weird. Because <laughs> um, this is just kind of, it's just sort of a sour note. And, you know, maybe I will never recapture that feeling of being 15 and seeing The Matrix for the first time again, right? Um, but I wish that this had advanced the conversation rather than really just plugging us back into the same old conceits. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of this? Like Alyssa, I thought this movie was intriguing and interesting at times, even con- kind of ambitious, kind of audacious. And I also don't think it really came together at the in the end. I think the the meta gimmick is amusing at first. And and then when you see how far they're, they've decided to take it, and by they, I mean Lana Wachowski and uh, her co-writers, David Mitchell, who whose books I like, but has a reputation in the uh, literary world for being, um, I think, uh, what one of my friends once called kind of a gimmick monger. And this movie feels like it is. It was designed by a gimmick monger, someone who was who became obsessed with the gimmick at the expense of what the gimmick was there to do. And yes, it's cute that nearly every scene in the first two acts of this film is a direct reference to a comparable scene in the in the first film. Um, occasionally, in one of the the sequels, uh, even you know the, uh, the the trip back to Zion is just. Uh, it's not quite beat for beat. But uh, not the trip back to Zion. Whatever the human, the new human city, Io, Io, that is that is just Zion again, How dare right? You. Um, but that, but it's cool. It, but no, to be fair, this is a much cooler looking Zion. This it, is like this is one of the few actual but improvements. It's, it, but it? it's also an extended reference to this scene in the first film with the Oracle, right? And so you even have the try it. It's delicious bit, right? Where they hand. To the somebody something right it's that you know here we're gonna go Chocolate see the the old you know it's it's the old wise black woman who sort of delivers like the the kind of a little bit of a lesson and like some exposition right to sort of get things moving and like help the character center himself and what he's doing right at this every single scene up until the very end of the, the last 30 minutes, 40 minutes or so is just a quote or a reference to the original. And why? Because it's a joke that sequels always have to do this, right? So if you watch Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, it is on the one hand a great movie, but the worst thing about it is that it's structurally almost exactly a repeat of Spider-Man 1, just with a little bit uh, better and more extended action. Now, I think it's a better movie than Spider-Man 1, but it's like notably somebody in the the studio like they sat around and said how can we do the same thing again but more because that is that's the rules of big blockbuster sequels and here they are making fun of the rules of big blockbuster sequels but not really to any end and i and i I feel like so just sort of to to tie this together with one other thing that i think is actually important that you didn't talk about Alyssa, but that we've all talked about offline the first couple of films all had gimmicks and they were all sort of filled with like there was some pseudo intellectual claptrap in those movies right all all of the stuff with the architect and whatever like it's like what what is this it doesn't ex- really pay off it doesn't really mean anything but the first two films and the first one in particular work anyway because the, those movies are tied together with just the most terrific jaw-dropping action sequences you have ever seen and those sequences hold up today, both in terms of the effects work. Um, like some of it looks a little bit goopy, especially in like the 100 Smiths fight, right? There's a little bit of sort of digital, right? Oh, okay, you can tell this is old CG. But it looks much better than a lot of the contemporary Marvel CG at mega budget, right? And the C- 
forget whether the CG looks perfect or not. Those scenes are perfectly clear and incredibly well paced. They have uh, they have like a rhythm to them, right? Uh, all of them were were choreographed by Yuan Wu Ping, famous um, uh, 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 martial arts film uh, director, and then a choreographer for for American films. And all of Wu Ping's uh, action sequences have some people call it sort of a dance sensibility, but what I actually think about it is that it's conversational. Each person is trying a gambit, and they will like try something on each other, and then the other person will try something, and then there's always this thing that the, the first Matrix movies do so well is there's a beat where they stop and they consider what the other person has just done. And it's almost like the action is continually resetting and evolving, right? And so what it allows you to do is follow these incredibly intricate, uh, super, like just super awesome action beats in a way that this movie doesn't even have awesome action beats. And then it just sort of stages it all as like a junky clutter. And so when you've surrounded bad action sequences with this sort of like, this... This go nowhere gimmickry that David Mitchell has, I think, was is probably uh, at least somewhat responsible for. You just don't end up with a, much of a movie in the end. And Peter, I want to go back to what you said about sort of the scene with the strawberry echoing the scene with the Oracle and the chocolate chip cookies, um, because that those two scenes together in particular get to me about a way in which the Matrix Resurrections is a failure. And so part of what's interesting about the scene with original scene with Neo and the Oracle um, is both the way it sort of undercuts what you expect. When you're when you talk about an oracle, you expect someone sort of um, you know, elevated and, you know, mysterious. And part of what's fascinating about that scene is that it's so mundane, right? It's an older African-American woman in her kitchen, uh, you know, making cookies, hanging out with some kids who are acting kind of weird. Um, and she is inscrutable. She's not elevated. She, you know, sort of puts off a claim to higher knowledge. But the cookie she offers, Neo, um, you know, is a way of getting at it's like reality is, you know, to what extent is reality rooted in your mind? To what extent is sort of pleasure and your existence, you know, where where do those sensations come from? And, you know, the scene in Io has a really great premise, right? I mean, because the truth at the end of The Matrix Revolutions is that uh, humans who want to leave the Matrix are allowed to leave. But, you know, it, the world that they're leaving for is pretty grim. And, you know, Io should be an art, it should have been set up in this movie as an argument about the importance of pleasure and community and giving people a reason to leave, right? Like if, you know, you need, you know, Bugs complains that uh, Niobe is spending all of her time, you know, cultivating strawberries instead of freeing people from the matrix, but you need the strawberries to get people to want to leave, to give them a reason to live in the world outside of the matrix. You know, one of the, you know, the great scenes in the original is, you know, the traitor. They should have just you know, played sitting, pig during that sequence, right? Yeah, to a certain extent, but you know, you have, um, you know, a character going back to the matrix in part so we can eat a really great steak and have a wonderful bottle of wine, right? Like, uh, you know, there is an argument that being in the Matrix is more pleasurable than what Morpheus and his fellow human rebels have to offer. And Niobe's story should have been a sort of counter-argument to what Bugs is saying. It's like, yes, we need to spend time freeing people, but we also need to give them a reason to be free. You can't, you know, and to a certain extent, the closest the Matrix Resurrections gets to a big idea is, you know, sort of pushing back on contemporary social justice politics to a certain extent, right? I mean, you, you know, the fact that 
they include, like the Matrix is about trans politics in the scenes that they're kind of making fun of the way people talk about the Matrix, even though Lily and Lana have said, you know, they were both closeted. They were not out yet when they made the first Matrix movie. Um, Lana didn't even come out until the making of Cloud Atlas. Um, You know, they have both said that that is true and they're sort of making fun of that notion. Neil Patrick Harris's character, The Analyst, is kind of a parody of contemporary therapeutic culture, right? I mean, there there are actual therapeutic techniques he's using in those scenes with Neo, but you know, when he talks about Neo being, you know, or Tom Anderson being triggered, you know, they're sort of making fun of that as well. And so, you know, the the really powerful argument in that scene with Niobe and in the movie as a whole could have been to say, like, you cannot, as your politics, offer people like mush and misery and self-flagellation and expect large numbers of them to take you up on it, right? Like you need to offer them pleasure and connection and, you know, reasons to sacrifice, you know, reasons to be in the world that you want to live in. Which is and, funny since this movie offers its viewers, I think, a lot of yeah. mush. Yes, exactly. Well, to, and so I mean, there, it, there is a good big argument here. But if your big idea is that contemporary franchise culture is bad, you are still accepting the framework that contemporary franchise culture rules us all instead of breaking out beyond it entirely. And it's just it's well, depressing to see filmmakers who did so much to make action movies and movies in general feel fresh kind of accepting the logic. Yeah. Um, it's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know to 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 get into all of that with old Niobe, uh, you would you would have to lose fifteen to twenty minutes of prattling at the beginning of this film, and that is clearly where their interests lie. Yeah. I mean, like everybody wants to, you know, we can all talk about like, oh, this is, oh, it's not really about corporate franchise culture. It's about love. Well, the the series is already about that. Like the series has already done that. It's already done that. And it does it again here. And it doesn't really do it any better here. It actually does it much more dumbly here. Like the, the, my, one, one, here's one very basic issue I have with this movie is that it is never clear at all why Neo and and Trinity need to be resurrected. No, um, like they, they <laughs> something, like in, something, so, suppose, the something, stability something they of the Matrix. More power for the Matrix. Yeah. But like the the Matrix is generate is is harvesting BTUs, not like brain waves, right? Like so like I anyway, whatever. The, the I whole think point it was is, it's it dumb. was that people resisted the new Matrix when they weren't together. Though yeah, whatever. Why whatever that would it is, be it's stupid. Whatever, whatever the reason is, it's dumb. It uh, doesn't make any sense. But maybe that's just a metaphor for the dumb f- for the franchise's rules. Is that like people resisted yeah. the Matrix? If it will resist the Matrix movies, if it doesn't have Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss getting together. Anyway, I just there's so much that annoys me about this movie. I would just like to again praise Jonathan Groff and Yahya Abdul Mateen the second. And, who's been uh, great some in of the other. everything he's been in for like a solid two years now. Just like the only the only thing he has been in recently that I did not love him in was Aquaman because he, yeah. he's kind of he has kind of a nothing villain role in that. But he's great in Watchmen. He's great in Handyman. I didn't uh, love Aquaman very, very as a movie. Nice. I thought he was actually quite good in it. He's good in the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Oh, I, for- yes. I forgot. Yeah, yes. he's great. He's in that too. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Matrix Resurrections, uh, Peter? Sadly, a thumbs down. Alyssa. A regretful thumbs down. 
thumbs down. I wanted to love this and I did not. Uh, and I'll, all of you nerds out there who are yelling at me for not loving it enough, you know, you're part, you're, you're the, you're the swarm mode. How do you like that? I'm turning, flipping the tables on you, you idiots. All right, uh, that's it for this week's show. If you loved it, uh, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on our favorite non-Matrix Wachowski film. Uh, make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 